Hello everyone, Saud Alzaid here. Welcome to another episode of The Surge. So for today's episode, I'd like to talk about massive transfusion protocols and are they all equal? Do we all follow the same rules? I don't think so. Um, I've been lucky enough to work in more than one place. Some of them have MTPs, some of them don't. Uh, some of them rarely use them, some of them use them every day. And uh, that's why I have this theory that not all massive transfusion protocols are equal and finding that perfect, nuanced, well-worded protocol for your institution really is a process more so than something that you can just sit down and, and decide over the course of two or three meetings. It's something that'll take possibly up to a year to a year and a half to actually perfect. And there are many institutions where I've worked where they're constantly refining what they call an MTP. And one of the reasons why I think that rings true is the fact that we've never really agreed upon what a definition of a massive transfusion is. Um, when I first started my ultra-short, nano, almost non-existent surgical career, if you replaced a complete blood volume, quote-unquote, 70 ml per kg, body weight of blood products were transfused into a patient over a day, you called it a massive transfusion. So if you spent the whole call giving bags and bags and bags of blood, you arbitrarily said that's a massive transfusion or the patient received a massive transfusion. Fast forward to about midway through my residency and we start talking about 50% blood volume in four hours. Again, using the same arbitrary 70 ml per kg to calculate it or four units of packed RVCs with continued instability afterwards, which I, I still use today. It's my go-to definition just because I know that I'm going to continue to give blood at that point and I'm going to be giving other blood products too, not just packed RBCs. And finally, the one that I'm seeing increasingly in the literature is 10 units of blood or blood products over 24 hours. And I think that all the above definitions are true. I don't think that there's necessarily one way to define it. And I don't think that there's necessarily a single definition of massive transfusion. I think that a massive transfusion is something that is triggered by a patient's physiology and, and the reason for presentation and is probably abated by a correction of the physiology and whatever you do in between is what you would call a massive transfusion. So to protocolize that process is not as easy as it sounds when you put it that way, right? So that's why I think there's so many different controversies associated with massive transfusion protocols. So one of the first things that you need to define as a stakeholder within your institution is when to trigger it. Now, in my mind, in most institutions, there are five good reasons or five presentations that patients can have that may require a massive transfusion protocol. The first is trauma. The second is severe gastrointestinal bleeding. The third is a ruptured aortic aneurysm. Four is obstetric hemorrhage. And five is surgical or procedural misadventure. A problem with the line that you put in, a problem intraoperatively that led to bleeding, etc. These aren't necessarily a reason to trigger your protocol, but these are cases that may make you want to think about triggering your protocol. Now, how do we predict it more accurately? Well, there's more than one scar in the literature, and when I f again, one of the ones that I rely on the most, or used to rely on the most, was the McLaughlin score. Uh, it included a pH of uh, less than 7.25, hematocrit of less than uh, 0.32, a heart rate of greater than 105, and systolic blood pressure of less than 110. If you had one of the four above, you had a 20% chance of requiring a massive transfusion. If you had four of them, you had an 80% chance. 
it was a logarithmic equation and you punched the numbers in and it gave you an exact percentage, but that's just sort of the Cliff Notes version of it. And I encourage everybody to read the paper associated. There'll be a link provided as well, of course. There's also the TASH score, which is a little bit more nuanced. Uh, it involves many factors such as hemoglobin, base excess, systolic blood pressure, heart rate that were mentioned prior. It also includes free intra-abdominal fluid, either by fast or diagnostic peritoneal lavage, clinically unstable pelvis, an open or dislocated femur fracture, and male gender. My problem with the TASH score and the ABC score, which I'll get to next, is the fact that they've only been validated for trauma, whereas the McLaughlin score has been used in the military setting, has been used out of hospital, and has also been used uh, in non-traumatic cases of hemorrhagic shock, such as intraoperative misadventures. The ABC score is the one I tend to use most in the trauma bay these days, and I tend to teach the residents most. It's a systolic blood pressure of less than 90, a heart rate of greater than 120, penetrating mechanism or positive fluid on fast. If you have three out of four of those, you have a 45% chance of needing a blood transfusion. If you have four out of four, you need to give them blood. End of story. So I think that that score, the ABC score, is probably the most useful in the trauma-based setting. And the McLaughlin score is the one that I'd use in any other setting. But the fact of the matter is, if you really think about it, and you really think that you might need more than four units of blood, just order the MTP. <laughs> I know I've just contradicted myself, but that's the difference between reality and what we have on paper. And as evidence-based on my practices, and I'm sure your practices, there are days when we just go, the gestalt doesn't fit, this guy needs some blood in him, right? Especially in the trauma bay. Now, when I talk about the key components of MTPs, many of the ones that I, I read initially when we first started doing MTPs at my institution here in Kuwait were centered around what units to give, what should be in the cooler, uh, how to prime the line, things like that. In my mind, the key components of a massive transfusion protocol are number one, to arrest the bleeding. So apply pressure over the wounds, put tourniquets on, and make a plan to either go to the OR or go to angiography or start scoping the patient. There has to be a plan for definitive hemorrhage control mechanically, either surgically through uh, angiography or through tourniquets and an X-fix, but there has to be a plan in place. Number two, keep the patient warm. Number three, hyperoxygenate the patient. If you have to intubate them, go ahead and intubate them. But the fact of the matter is you need to control it and you need to hyperoxygenate them because you need their physiology to be ready for prime time. Number four, do not start more than two liters of crystalloid. Even the two liters of crystalloid, I'd back off on unless you really had to give it. I see no reason to give crystalloid if you're waiting for blood unless the patient's actively arresting and you think it might help. Again, I've never seen two liters of crystalloid help with an active arrest too, but to each his own. Just make sure you don't water them down too much. Next, we have IV access, which I talked about in round about episode 7, and I'll briefly talk about it again here. Transexemic acid and other adjuncts, such as reversal agents for anticoagulants and novel um, non uh, novel uh, oral anticoagulants or NOACs, uh, blood product infusion strategies which we'll talk about a little bit later, and when to stop or when to halt your transfusion, which I always find a little bit more challenging um, than most of my colleagues do. Maybe because I'm a little bit trigger-happy about starting MTPs to begin with, but that's just me. 
So in terms of IV access, I've talked about this before. If you're going to be in an active resuscitation, two large bore IVs just aren't enough in 2017. You need five lumens. You need two bolus lumens to be able to give your blood products. You need a non-pressor drug lumen. You need a pressor ionotrope lumen. And you need the sedation, paralysis, and blood investigation lumen. In my mind, in 2017, if you are a resuscitation expert, you need to cite five lumens in a patient. Usually my lumens end up with pressure bags on them, and this is why. Again, if you're very interested in this, uh, there's a dedicated episode on my take on IV access and the effects of infusion pumps, uh, rapid infuser, Belmonts, and other ones on the rate of flow. As you can see, you get exponential rates of flow when you take out the um, bung in the middle and uh, you can and the uh, Y connection and you connect up the IV bag straight uh, to a um, pressure bag you can turn a 22 gauge easily into a 14 gauge and you can turn a 14 gauge up to a, a Rick line and uh, so on and so forth and in fact if you look for the maximal rate of, of um, infusion it comes from a Mac line or a nine French monster with a triple lumen to it. Uh, these lines are extremely versatile. They're my go-to line whenever I activate an MTP. Uh, my preferred site is a subclavian. I usually insert it blindly without ultrasound. Um, I use ultrasound in the ICU. I don't use it in the trauma bay because I usually have somebody else doing a fast ultrasound while I'm working. But again, that's just me. That may not be the right thing to do, and I'm not advocating for it. I'm just saying that in certain situations, learning how to put blind lines in is probably a good thing. Now, the transexemic acid argument. So, we all know that it works in trauma, crash 2. We're all crash 2 believers, I hope. Um, it kind of works in orthopedics extremely well. I've seen it work in the operating room numerous times. It works in obstetrics. And, yes, there are venous complications reported. But these complications are not in my population. My trauma population, even when getting microsurgery done, once they're quote-unquote stable in the military setting, have proved that transexemic acid is safe and does not lead to more thromboembolic or um, uh, venous thrombotic events. It just doesn't happen. It's a work of fiction in our population because we keep an eye out for these things in our population. And when you really think about it, the clotting cascade in and of itself if drawn out correctly, does not include a way for transexemic acid to make you hypercoagulable. If you are hypercoagulable and you form a clot, you're less likely to dissolve the clot if you have transexemic acid on board. But it does not make you more hypercoagulable. It just doesn't. The physiology isn't there, the biochemistry isn't there, and the large-scale studies prove that it isn't there. Previous studies that seem to have quoted some extra venoembolic events were probably ones where a people were looking for them b people had confounding factors or c were underpowered to look for it in the first place at least that's my take on it also i'm only going to mention this once because it happened to me one time check for any anticoagulants check for any noags such as dergatroban etc you never know when these things are going to be circulating in our patients um, family doctors keep prescribing them and i'm not sure why I think that they're dangerous personally, uh, as you can clearly tell. Uh, maybe it's because I see too many people who fall and smack their heads while on them and end up with craniectomies where we can't stop the bleeding, but that's just me. 
So again, I can't reiterate this enough. Check for uh, uh, novel oral anticoagulants. Check for dark thrombin inhibitors. Check for new anticoagulant classes and antiplatelet classes. And try and take care of it as soon as possible. Be cognizant of it. Use your TEG machine if you have it. Now, when you're infusing blood products and blood, there are, there are specific nuances to the strategies that, that I tend to use or, or our team tend to use. The first is we don't really wait for a full cross match sometimes. In most cases, the first bag that we get it contains uh, four units of blood that's the same blood type as the patient's, but may not have necessarily been cross matched. It depends on the sense of urgency required. There are some institutions where O negative and AB uh, positive FFP and O negative Pactor RBCs are available in the fridge. I've been to these places. They're very slick at what they do. The minute that fridge opens, they're getting cross-matched blood ready. So the patient gets the bare minimum. But is there any reason for all this drama? Is there any good reason why we shouldn't be giving uncross-matched blood as first line or we should be waiting for blood to come in? In some cases for over 45 minutes, Lord help me. The answer is probably not. Non-hemorrhagic shock. In semi-elective blood transfusions, yes, I agree with you, in blood transfusions for patients who remain hemodynamically stable or are clinically ill and are, quote-unquote, what I call stable in their instability, maybe there might be a higher incidence of uh, hemolytic reactions, but in 2017, in hemorrhagic shock, you don't have it. It's not there. Um... The, the, the rate of significant injuries is extremely, extremely, extremely small. And I think that that's because patients require anything to support their vasculature and support their oxygen exchange to an extent. Yes, I know, packed RBCs do not exchange oxygen as well as new RBCs or inherent endogenous RBCs within our bodies do, but they do some work. Again, I reiterate the point, it's extremely rare that uncross-matched blood will cause a huge hemolytic reaction or negative blood will cause a huge hemolytic reaction. In fact, in many cases, they probably saved lives, especially in hemorrhagic shock. So that's issue number two after the transexemic acid argument. Issue number three is what's the best ratio for giving blood products? In my mind, the best ratio is one to one to one. To one. This is not just because of the fact that the proper trial and the prompt trial proved it. Well, not proved it, but supported it. It's also because we know that simulating whole blood or giving whole blood from um, various uh, military studies and military reports from the uh, military population, I'm not going to say military a fourth time, I swear, oops, I just did it, all seem to point to the fact that whole blood or trying to... to put together a recipe for whole blood uh, seems to point to the right direction in terms of positive outcomes, reduced mortality, reduced incidence of multi-organ failure, and reduced overall need of blood and blood products. So with that in mind, both the prompt trial and the proper trial um, have pretty much uh, proven the fact that uh, one to one to one transfusion protocols in which every patient gets one unit of packed RBCs for every unit of FFP, for every unit of plates or plasma within 24 hours, seems to be the right thing to do. 
and it probably is the right thing to do. It's been reported to show uh, increased rates of survival, uh, reduced rates of multi-organ failure, and reduced rates of complications, and reduced rates of overall use of blood products, which if you think about it, every unit of blood or packed RBCs costs about uh, 300 to 500 bucks, depending on which institution you're in. There's also the economic benefit. Although that is not a priority, I want to make that clear, it's still something to think about. The next piece of controversy is what should I put in the funnel first or what should I put in my level one first? Should I start off with packed RBCs or should I start off with FFPs or platelets? Now, I have my own personal theory and I've had this for a long time and I've never been able to prove it because ethics committees won't let me do this. I don't think that packed RBCs are the be-all and end-all in survival when it comes to patients who are candidates for massive transfusions. I think that it's time to correction of co coagulopathy. The faster you correct coagulopathy and the faster you correct physiology, the better your patients do. That's just my gut feeling, and I've never been able to prove it. So in my mind, massive transfusion protocols and their utility does not lie in trying to shove blood in patients. I think that they, they produce better outcomes because the time to, co to correction of coagulopathy and the time to correction of FFP and platelet ratios has produced a positive outcome in our patient population. And there's been more than a couple of papers, one in the International Journal of Critical Illness and Injury Science, uh, which I will reference uh, later and provide the link to, as well as um, various others have shown that early high ratios of platelet transfusions and trauma and resuscitation have uh, reduced uh, mortality, reduced infectious complications, and reduced rates of multi-organ failure. So the more platelets and FFPs that you give, the better it is for your patients. A second paper in the World Journal of Emergency Surgery, uh, also by Latifi et al., seemed to point in the direction that um, the more uh, FFPs you give within the first four hours or so seem to correlate with better outcomes overall, as opposed to the ones that you give within 24 hours. Uh, similarly, there's been a 10-year analysis of transfusion practices over the course of Operation Iraqi Freedom and Operation During Freedom, and they all seem to correlate with the same thing. Basically, the quicker that you shove the FFPs into the patient, the quicker that you shove platelets into the patient, the better that they do. The golden hour for transfusion seems to be between um, three and four hours, at least based on these studies. Uh, massive transfusion protocols also seem to uh, do better uh, in patients who receive uh, aggressive resuscitation early as opposed to ratioed products only. This again was before we go, went for strict one-to-one-to-one -one -one transfusion, so it's hard to tell what it's like these days. But it seems to point in the direction that the quicker you get the FFPs into a patient, the better that they do. Um, this seems to have also translated to uh, polytrauma population, the civilian population, and also seems to translate um, to uh, animal models in terms of neuroprotection and endorgan protection, and uh, in TBIs as well, uh, especially those that present with hemorrhagic shock, which uh, forms a significant amount of blunt traumas that we see, of course. So all in all, I think my personal theory is uh, with time, we're going to see more um, of an FFP first strategy, if you want to call it that, 
And if you want to call it the as eight strategy, you can go ahead and call it that too. Although I don't think I'll ever get to publish on it. I'd like to think that I came up with the idea first. Though chances are I probably didn't, seeing the amount of literature that seems to support it. Um, so what is best and which is what's the best place to start with these things? Most places and most centers that have gone through the pain of trying to establish a mass transfusion protocol will tell you there's no good place to start. You just have to sit down with the stakeholders, come up with a plan, and take it from there, and modify it accordingly. Expect that there will be problems, expect that there will be strain, expect that there will be um, certain arguments made for and against and it doesn't have to be something that's complicated and it doesn't have to be something that's glorified and there doesn't have to be a dedicated fridge in your, t your trauma bay if anything that the um, tquip uh, program has shown it's that mtp saved lives no matter what type of mtp you have the fact of the matter is that if you're in a center that receives traumas that's designated a trauma center and you have something on paper that's called an mtp your patients are going to do better so that's a good place to start right now, are we all on the same page when it comes to MTPs? Well, clearly from the title of the whole episode, no, we're not. Uh, we're miles away from being on the same page. And like I said before, it's because the science of massive transfusion is still in its prime. It's still something that we're actively researching. And um, I think that there are other quicker paths to hemostasis that we still haven't even explored, such as octoplex and beriplex and other prothrombin complex concentrates. A recent paper in neurosurgery uh, seems to point to that direction too. Um, this paper by a group out of uh, University of Arizona uh, where they gave prothrombin complex concentrates to warfarin-free and coumadin-free patients uh, seems to show a shortened time to craniectomy, faster correction of INR, and overall reduction in terms of uh, the amount of uh, FFP required. Um, it's a very small paper, a very small number of patients, uh, but it seems to provide some hope for the use of uh, fresh frozen plasma and prothrombin concentrates in combination as opposed to on their own. So I can see this being our first line sort of coagulation uh, correction uh, aspect of the protocol. And I can see some protocols being developed over time with prothrombin concentrate being the uh, initial trigger of the protocol along with transexemic acid. But only time, time will tell if that will ring true. Now, finally, uh, when do, would you stop a tr massive transfusion protocol? There are certain things that correlate with abating hemorrhage, as we all know. Things like blood pressure, heart rate, corrected pH, normalizing lactin-based deficit, uh, hemoglobin, calcium, and temperature, albeit in a delayed manner. And... You know, I think that we can all agree that even if you want to stop giving the blood, you still have to keep an eye out for bleeding. So it's hard to tell how to stop and when to stop. I don't track hemoglobin, and I don't track hematocrit urine output, INR, platelet count while I'm transfusing. I tend to track them after the fact once I've hit the following. And this is completely not evidence-based, completely arbitrary, and something that I learned from my mentors. And it's probably something that might be dangerous over time. But in my mind... A temperature above 35, a pH that's improving from 7.2, a base deficit that's improving from minus 6 or a 20% deviation improvement, a lactate that's uh, trending down as well, 
Tegs and rotems that seem to be uh, correlating with improved coagulopathy, a correct calcium level, platelets above 50, and PTT-APTT ratio of 1.5 or an INR of 1.5 or less, all to me seem to correlate with being within the safety zone, and you can maybe start backing off on the blood product, but I'd still keep checking them on a regular basis afterwards. Lastly, I'd like to to make sure that my fibrinogen levels are normal so that... um, I avoid any issues with that. Um, I hate it when people forget to give cryo. Let's leave it at that. Watch out for the complications that you might have over the 48 hours afterwards, up to 96 hours. You will have patients who are hypocalcemic. Uh, Depending on how much citrate they get, you may want to monitor their calcium more regularly than usual. I tend to go for every four runs. So every four units packed RBCs, four units FFP, and 10 of platelets, 10 of cryo, I go ahead and check the calcium. Similarly with the potassium, I, I do the same thing with a point of care ISTAT. It's not the most accurate, but it's never failed me yet. I make sure that my patient's on a cardiac monitor to be able to see the waveform of their EKG to check for any signs of hyperkalemia that may be clinically manifest. And I'm always cognizant that the next bag of blood that I give might have some disease that might be transmitted. It's super rare, but you never know until you know. And to be quite honest, I never look for trolley, and I never worry about trolley or transfusion-related lung injury. Because in my mind, you need to survive to have a complication, and most of the patients that I'm activating this on are in hemorrhagic shock. So I really don't think that we have a choice here, but we have to be cognizant of the fact that we shouldn't be extubating them six hours after the fact. You might want to keep them intubated for a while to see if they develop any uh, respiratory compromise. Most of these patients end up with some form of volume overload, so I keep an eye for uh, filling pressures, monitor response to volume, and diuresis. I also tend to check for abdominal compartment as well. And uh, some cases where things aren't really improving, I I probably end up doing a bedside echo. Um, I don't think that there's any such thing as overtransfusion hemorrhagic shock until the vitals stabilize. But you don't want to make your patient polycythemic either. So keep an eye on the hemoglobin, especially if you work in an institution that are more aggressive with uh, units of packed RBCs than they are with fresh frozen plasma. Um, I try my best to keep my patient from being hypothermic. I start up the fluid warmers early, uh, have an NG or rectal temperature probe uh, in the patient, and start up the warming blanket the minute um, uh, we're ready to go. And I'm always cognizant of coagulation or dilution coagulopathy. Unless you have surgical or mechanical control and uh, control of medical bleeding, it's very hard for a patient to do well. So putting on the tourniquet is great, but you also have to have your physiological tourniquet tied down too. And I always keep an eye out for dilution uh, coagulopathy. I hate it when it does happen. Unfortunately, it does happen on occasion. And there's very little they can do but try and correct it. So keep an eye out for it. Also, one of the major, major things that we never think about is fever and what causes it. So the top, I'd say, seven causes I see in my unit are trallitaco, acute delayed hemolytic transfusion reactions, uh, non-febrile uh, hemolytic uh, transfusion reactions, bacterial viral infections, IgA-deficient anaphylaxis, graft-versus-host disease, and storage lesion effects. I don't see them very often, but I do see them at least 1 in 10 uh, patients who have received more than 5 units of blood. That is packed RBCs. So, in conclusion, 
as we discussed earlier, or I've discussed by myself while you guys were listening, and I apologize for that. Um, I'm hoping to get more guests on the show soon. Uh, ratio transfusion strategies work well. They work better than anything else that we have right now. But is new blood better than old blood? In reality, especially when you're looking at coagulation factors, more so than oxygen exchange issues. Uh, should we be dealing with the coagulopathy first and seeing what happens? Is there such a thing as time to correction of coagulopathy or golden hour for coagulopathy? And is uncrossed match bad really as bad as people tell us or the hematologists tell us? I find it hard to tell, hard to know really. When should we stop? Again, arbitrary numbers do make sense. Physiology will tell you when to stop. But keeping an eye out for the hemoglobin and everything else... Maybe not so much, especially in patients who are actively emerging. Your blood gas and your physiology will tell you all, I find. And keep an eye out for prothrombin concentrate coming to a massive transfusion protocol near you. This is Saad al Thanks for listening and uh, subscribe. Uh, keep the emails and the comments coming. Uh, it is thesurge at gmail.com. Sorry, thesurgepodcast at gmail.com. T-H-E-S-U-R-G-E-P-O-D-C-A-S-T at gmail.com or find us on Twitter. Have a good day.